Good morning. Welcome back to the room. We're going to get started this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 24. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Uh, we started the book of Mark several months ago, and, uh, and it was, uh, we worked through chapters 1 through 8, and we finished chapter 8 last week on this bit of a cliffhanger, right? Jesus has taken his disciples north. Uh, they are in um, sort of secular territory outside of Israel, and he's clarifying for them what it means to be a Christian. That was last week. He said that in order for you to follow me, in order for you to be a Christ follower, in order for you to be a Christian, he sort of defined what it is to be a Christian by saying you must deny yourself and take up your, your cross and, and follow me. That's, that's that idea of Jesus clarifying what it means to be a Christian. And it's easy to lose sight of definitions But Jesus makes it very clear. He makes it abundantly clear what it means to be a Christ follower. And so for the next few weeks, we want to summarize the gospel arc, the redemptive arc of Scripture, the overarching message of the Bible in terms of what it means to be a Christian. How do you you become a Christian? And, And the next week we'll talk about what's our responsibility as Christ followers. How are we supposed to take this good news, this redemptive message, and what's our role in it? So this is, I preach probably 90% exegetical, expository, verse by verse, book by book, and I just sort of go, but, but maybe 10% of the year I'll preach a topical message, Easter, Christmas, um, and a couple of situations like this where we're taking just a topic, which is understanding the gospel and how to be saved. That's what we're talking about today and the next uh, week as well. And then the third week on November 3rd, uh, I'll give a sort of state of the church merger um, sermon. It'll just be a message that sort of helps us see where we've been uh, for the last 18 months and where we are now and where we're going and what that would look like uh, going forward as a group of believers together. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Uh, Until then, I encourage you just to... um, you know, enjoy the book of Jonah, maybe pre-read it, uh, start to work through Jonah, the four chapters. You could read it uh, one time a day or even once a week, and you'll be thoroughly familiar with it by the time uh, November 10th comes around. But this morning we want to look at Psalm 24, and in particular focus on verse 3. And, uh, and so let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text for the day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we have to, to get together. Uh, as I was driving over this morning, I realized uh, that this is one of the few places um, in our culture where we can hear the Bible preached in the context of community. We could hear good preaching anywhere on radio, on apps, on Uh, TV, on video, on YouTube. There's a lot of places where we have access to really good teaching. But there are very few places in our culture where we have access to biblical teaching in the context of a loving community that will hold us accountable for sin, in whom we can confess, in whom we can find uh, love and acceptance and grace and mercy despite our differences. Uh, I thank you that in the context of your church, We can hear the Word of God preached and proclaimed. 
in a group of people who we love and live around and pray and sing and think about and encourage. And as your word says, iron sharpens iron, that we may sharpen one another uh, in a good way. And so I thank you for this. There are not many places um, in our culture where a biblical message is heard in that context. So my prayer today is that all those who are here would listen to a biblical message and that they would walk away with a deeper understanding of you, a deeper love for you, a deeper passion to know you, and an overwhelming sense of joy and love that they would be able to walk out of here applying that great commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. I pray that this message would produce deeply committed followers of Jesus who love you fully and are committed to live in community with one another, that they may know us by our love for each other. Pray that that would be true. And so I ask that you would do your work through your word by your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, this passage was on my heart uh, during the week as I sort of approached this bigger gospel presentation. And so as we think about um, what the bigger message of Scripture is, the Genesis to Revelation, the redemptive arc that takes place throughout the whole Bible. My challenge is to summarize that uh, within our time together this morning. And, and so to start that off, I want us to read Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. So let's follow along in the Word of God. The Bible says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is this generation of those who seek him, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Helps us understand the context of the Bible's message. That is that God is on high, that God is holy, that he is high and lifted up as the creator, as the majestic ruler over all things. And we, as his creation, are below. We, are, uh, we have this sort of a broken relationship with God the Father. Uh, and it's because of that that the psalmist asked this question, who is capable? Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? So we want to answer that question this morning is who is able? Uh, that is, how can we be in a right relationship with God? How can we be in a right relationship with God? How can we walk in peace and love and assurance with our creator? And what does the Bible have to say about that? Now, I want to present this message in such a way that even the youngest child can walk away from here with a deep understanding of what it means to be redeemed. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to ascend the symbolic hill and be in a relationship, a reunited, restored relationship with our Creator? But I also want to present it in such a way that, that even the oldest saint among us, even the one who has walked with the Lord the longest, can still marvel at the goodness and the grace of God. 
that can still walk out of here and as we sing our final song, that just worship wells up in your soul for a God who would love us enough, uh, that would know us so deeply and perfectly, but would still love us completely and choose to save us. I want us to see that. So let's start with some understanding of this mountain idea. Mountains are significant in the Bible. You probably know that if you've read uh, the Bible through. You know that there are a number of places where mountains uh, have some sort of meaningful, symbol, uh, symbolic understanding in scripture you think about noah uh, the ark came to rest on a mountain right Uh, you think about abraham and he was told to go and sacrifice his son isaac and the lord tells him to go to the mountain for which i will show you and he as he's going to that mountain sort of in the jerusalem area um, as he's about to give sacrifice the lord provides a substitute right and so this happens in this mountaintop experience Uh, moses experienced Experiences God, uh, His presence on Mount Sinai, where the presence of God descends in a cloud and with fire, and and this mountain is sort of quarantined as the holy dwelling place of God in this time period, where Moses is able to get the word of God, and and so and all throughout Scripture, you think about Elijah, he confronts the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. Um, in the passage that we stopped, which we'll pick up with in Mark, um, maybe around February when we finish Jonah. Jesus in in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 um, he takes his disciples up on a mountain and he's transfigured before them and in their presence is Moses and Elijah and Jesus' clothes are transformed and they see the glory of God and they they experience the voice of God and all these things sort of take place on a mountain and so what's the big deal about mountains? Well mountains have this sort of spiritual significance in that they are um, You think of the Tower of Babel where the people are trying to build this sort of building up to God where God is viewed as above and as holy and as outside of our realm. So mountains depict this desire to be up there with Him. And so people will go up to a mountain and they'll go up to a high place and they it does a few things. It helps them sense that they're closer to God, but it also helps them uh, get outside of the stuff that's happening beneath, right? Sometimes we get bogged down in life and so a different perspective makes a change for that. Symbolically, there is no difference in how high you go, right? Biblically, we understand that there is no height nor depth which can separate us from God, right? We understand that that there is no spiritual, physical difference that if we were worshiping a few feet higher than sea level, right, that we would be any closer to God than we would be if we worshiped at the bottom of this sort of hill down here. There's no real elevation difference in the in how we worship and commune with God, but these mountains have this sort of spiritual significance. Um, I remember uh, in 1991 climbing Mount Princeton. It's one of the collegiate peaks in beautiful Buena Vista, Colorado. And if you've ever climbed a 14er, you know that the, the, the tree line stops, that, uh, that at, once you get above a certain elevation, there are no more trees, and then you just climb higher. And as we sort of summited the peak of Mount Princeton, uh, we had this overwhelming, beautiful picture of God's glory, and the perspective changed, and it was just this real amazing moment. I think I even have a picture 
uh, to show you. Uh, don't be surprised, I have hair in this picture. Uh, you can't see very well, but I've got a hat on this guy on the left. Um, and so that's a picture of 16-year-old Gibson uh, on top of this mountain. But there's just something beautiful and sort of majestic about being above and being high and being in such a clean um, place where there wasn't pollution and there wasn't a lot of, you know, there, you don't see a lot of man-made stuff up there. You see these wonderful things up there. And so in this place, uh, I, I sort of have this picture as I think of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend? Who shall go up? Who can be in this presence of God? And so I want you to see um, in this way, using this sort of illustration of Mount Princeton, that as we were at this base level, 8,600 foot sort of parking area, and we all got off the bus, they showed us a 13 mile path in this four to six hour hike where a hundred or so teenagers were going to spend the day. And so as we took this walk, one of the things they were really clear about was don't get off the path. <laughs> You're going to see a really clear path. And if you stray off that path, um, there are cliffs and loose rocks and it's very dangerous. Uh, it's very dangerous. And so that sort of picture helps me understand who shall ascend this hill of the Lord in a way that I want to, uh, to help you see here. Because in your life, the path you choose will determine your destination, right? A few weeks ago, um, Ellie, my daughter, and I went to Canada to serve on a mission trip, and we plugged in on the phone uh, how to get to Niagara Falls, and then from Niagara, how to get to Montreal, and then from Montreal, how to get back. And that uh, GPS, it showed us exactly how to get where we were going, and, and any time we stayed on that, we made the most efficient time, um, we made the, the quickest time, we made the easiest time. It was on that path that we made our way to the destination. Now, I didn't end up in Atlanta, right? I didn't end up in, in, in California, I didn't end up uh, anywhere else. I ended up where I chose my destination and I followed the path to get there. And in a lot of ways, we do that as well. We have a path uh, that God wants us to follow. And you and I choose destinations for our lives all the time. If you want to live a life free of addiction, you choose a path whereby you stop spending time with bad influences. You don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be in temptation. Uh, you sort of plot your course based on the destination of maybe sober living. Right. Uh, or maybe you want to live a life of peace. And so you completely stay off Twitter and you uh, you sort of stop. You limit your time on social media and you sort of get rid of all anxiety and you want to plot a path that will enhance that and will correct that and will get you through that. And in all these ways, there are paths that we choose and we make decisions based on that that are like these sort of roadmaps. And and biblically, we understand if you can't see this. It's not going to be a very uh, detailed drawing that you see it really well. So if you can just picture this, that there is a path that God desires for you to walk on, right? Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path to life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in Psalm 1611, we understand that God has this sort of path for our life and that in the process of being on this path to life, you can experience a few things. You can experience peace, uh, you can experience purpose, 
You can experience assurance. You can experience God's blessing. You can experience forgiveness. I'm thinking through Ephesians 1 now. You can experience adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. You can experience the inheritance uh, of, of an eternal dwelling with God in His presence in this new Jerusalem. You can experience um, righteousness that's not your own. You can experience God's perfect plan for your life. In a lot of these ways, following this path as these sort of benefits. Now, we also know from last week that there is a cross-bearing aspect to this. That there is a, 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 a responsibility for us who have given our lives to Christ to carry a cross and to follow Jesus as He goes. Um, but this sort of path represents God's good purpose for your life. And you think, well, if it's that great, why is our world so bad? Like, What's, what's going on to where people aren't experiencing uh, this path to life? What has happened that is so terrible? Because we don't experience all those things. As a matter of fact, people um, experience great pain and terrible trials and a lot of difficulty in life. And so if, if there's this great path, why don't we experience that? And the problem is uh, that... We exit God's perfect path and we go our own way. We just go our own way. The Bible says this in Isaiah 53, 6a, that all we like sheep have gone astray and that we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Bible just calls this um, turning from Isaiah 53, 6. Uh, it calls that sin, that we miss the mark of God's path. We go in a direction um, that is wrong. We rebel against His revealed will for our lives. That's what the Bible calls sin. And the difficult thing, the, the hard thing for many people to swallow is that all of us are guilty of sin. I'm guilty of sin. You're guilty of sin. We're all in this room sinners. Uh, one of the best sort of ways that we can understand make sense of the church is that we're all sinners who have been redeemed by Jesus. And so we find difficulties. This, you'll never find the perfect church. Right? You'll keep searching and you'll keep looking and what you're going to find, I can promise you, are redeemed sinners. <laughs> People who don't have it all together. People who are experiencing great pain, great trials, great difficulties, trying to overcome addictions, trying to overcome their past, trying to overcome uh, all these issues, but they're forgiven and they're born again and they're new in Christ. And that's a beautiful picture of the church. But the truth is that we've all gone our own way. That's Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're born this way. You won't find a person who is born sinless. We're not good people who make mistakes. We're born under sin. We inherited this from Adam and Eve, and they fell in the garden, and their children were born sinful. And their children. How many of you have kids? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have kids. How many of you understand that your children are sinners? Right? Right? You understand that when you say, did you take the cookie? And there's chocolate on their face, and there's crumbs all over the floor, and there's, no, I didn't. I didn't take that. I didn't do, right? We understand that their most natural default position is to break the sixth commandment, right? You shall not tell a lie, right? Or you shall not, uh, um, you, you shouldn't disobey your parents. This is the, anybody who's a parent understands clearly 
that we're all sinners. We've all broken God's commandments. And the difficult, hard part about that is that as you pursue your own way, you will eventually hit a roadblock. You'll hit a wall. The further you go in sin, the longer you go on your own way. We read last week Solomon um, from Ecclesiastes. He said, I didn't stop my eyes or my appetite from indulging in anything that looked good to me. There's a consequence for just feeding your sin. It's like a black hole. You will never feel satisfied. You can throw experiences. You can throw religious ideas. You could throw moralism. You could throw sort of self-righteousness. You can throw pride. You can throw everything you can toward this sort of uh, appetite for doing things your own way and, and not going God's way. And it will leave you and bring you to this sort of crisis point. Sometimes it's a crisis point where um, you, you have a health issue. Sometimes it's a crisis point in a relationship. Sometimes it's a crisis point for natural consequences for sinful behavior. Um, there is just built into sinful living a, a consequence. And it will force all of us to come to this point where we're at crisis. And we feel the emptiness. And when we hit this wall, we come to this place where we can't handle that emptiness any longer. We come to this place where we can't handle this hopelessness or that your life is completely unfulfilled despite all that you've tried to do. Last week we talked about that Tom Brady interview from 2005 who after winning multiple Super Bowls and having this sort of uh, amazing life said, I wish there was something that satisfied me. I just wish there was more to life. All of us will come to that point as we continue in our sinful ways. And, and when you hit that wall, it's a, it's a very painful place, Right? But it's also the grace of God. This wall is the grace of God. This wall represents you coming to a place called the end of yourself. Where you come to a place where you realize, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this way anymore. I can't do things on my own any longer. I need help. I need God. If you push through that wall... You won't be able to see this. But if you push through this wall and you continue to go your own way, the Bible says that eventually you will hit another wall. If you just press through this barrier and you don't make any changes, you will hit another barrier. And that is ultimately you'll hit the wall of God's judgment. There is in the Bible a understanding that there is a judgment day. Uh, Revelation 20 describes... Um, all the living and all the dead were before God and these books were opened and there was this sort of day of reckoning. Romans fourteen twelve says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will have to answer for all the things that we've done. We will ultimately have to answer for all of our rebelliousness and all of our sinfulness. If we persist in our own way and this wall doesn't stop us, for making a different decision, if we press through that, we will ultimately, eventually, be confronted with all of our works to the God who doesn't miss anything. Jesus said that we will be held accountable for every word we say, plus our actions. And for us, that's a terrifying thought. 
Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. This separation from God is what we feel. The paycheck that we deserve for our works of sin is death. But there's good news, right? There's really good news. That if you hit this crisis point, you don't have to persist in your own way. There is an alternative, and it is in the cross. We see here that this place where we come, where we hit the end of ourselves, this roadblock, that this is a point of decision for you. Where you can come to a place where you understand what the cross means and how you can get back to this path to life. This good news is that God provided a way for you to be restored to Him. And He did so at great cost to Himself. And He did so because He loves you incredibly deeply. God grieves that we have gone our own way. This burdens Him. It hurts Him that we are so sinful and that our world is so evil and that so many people are persisting in their own way and it's causing such great pain that He made a way and it cost Him everything. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a very clear invitation based on God's love for you that when you hit this wall, there is hope that you can be restored to God and be placed back on this path to life. That's the good news. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came as evidence that God loves you deeply, that He sees your pain, and that He's willing to condescend from heaven down to this place of great pain and great evil and great difficulty and great trial and pain, that He's willing to come and meet us where we are. And a lot of people say, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Couldn't God have just forgiven everybody? Couldn't He have just overlooked us going our own way and sort of made a more direct line where He sort of places everybody on the path to life without all the blood and all the cross talk? And, and couldn't He have done it a different way? And there are really three reasons that I want to talk about this morning why he can't do that. We've already talked about one of the reasons, and that is that God is love. That there's not a human being who is too far from the grace of God. You can't sin enough to where he can't reach you. As a matter of fact, when you come to the end of yourself, you realize how much sin you have accrued in your life and just how sort of unworthy your you are in the sense that your sin is so overwhelming that God should not save you, but because He loves you, He does. That's, that's the measure of His love for you. That's one reason that makes the cross necessary is God is love. But another thing you have to understand about God's character is He is a good judge, right? He's a very good judge. Uh, recently in this Amber Geiger um, murder trial, you probably saw a clip a few weeks ago of, uh, of the, the deceased man, his brother on the stand giving a victim statement at the hearing for this Dallas police officer who shot and killed this man's brother. 
And in this courtroom scene, the man is pleading with her to be saved. He doesn't want her to be um, to experience any punishment. Um, he doesn't want her to, to, to be sentenced. And so this man is giving this plea. And in the process of that, he wants to give her a hug. Right? Did anybody see that? Just raise your hand if you saw that clip. It's a very powerful scene, a very uh, moving scene of mercy. Where people struggle is that mercy takes a bite out of justice. Let me understand, help you understand what I mean there. The judge came down, gave the woman a hug as well, gave her her Bible, hugged the, the victim, and all of this was a beautiful display of mercy. But where people struggled is that this judge diminished justice in some way by giving mercy. Do you understand that? It's just unusual for a judge to go and hug the condemned and to give gifts. And and so for many people, it was a lack of justice. Justice was brought down for the sake of mercy. And so we understand that a good judge holds the guilty responsible, right? We would be in uproar if, let's say, a local person committed acts of violence, uh, acts of theft, acts of murder. Let's say somebody in our own community, maybe somebody close to us within the two or three towns around here committed these terrible acts and that there was a public outcry. Matter of fact, when Julie and I first moved here, um, maybe seven years ago, there was a, a girl who was uh, killed, found in a, a, a dumpster down on 2nd Street in Souderton. And I rem- we hadn't moved here yet, but I remember hearing people's accounts of that years later, that the community came out in mass to that little parking lot area. And there was a public outcry for what? For justice. For justice. Now, let's say the judge in that case reviewed all the facts and said, I really don't see any reason that this person should be condemned. I feel like they're okay that they said they're sorry and that they should just go back out into the world. There would be a public outcry. Why? Because we understand that a good judge doesn't deliver mercy, but holds the guilty accountable, right? We understand that. A good judge does that, and God is a good judge. So that's why you can't just wink at your sin and say, it's all right if you feel sorry for it. And and though you've broken all of my commandments, though you have strayed from the path, sometimes willingly, right? Some of us just, we go out and we say, I'm just going to sin as much as I want to. And, and so we, we just sort of say, I don't care. I'm going to go my own way, sometimes hard-heartedly, sometimes rebelliously. There are some of you who are here this morning who have just sinned to your heart's content in full understanding that, that it was wrong. A good judge can't just let that go. He has to punish sin. Do you understand that? So God is love. But God is a good judge. But the third way to understand why Jesus had to go to a cross is that God is merciful. He is overwhelmingly merciful. He is so merciful and so loving that He had to punish sin and He did so in such a way 
that it cost him everything. He sent his own son to pay the punishment that we, the guilty criminal, deserved. You understand that? That he didn't have to take on our punishment, but Jesus had to die on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Does that make sense? Peter said a few weeks ago, we read in Mark 8, Peter said, you don't have to go to a cross. You don't have to die. There's another way. You don't have to do this. And Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. There is no other way. I have to go to the cross to satisfy the payment for sin. The wrath of God must have a payment. And Jesus, though he were sinless, stood up and, as it were, took a bullet for us. Took the punishment that we all deserved for our sins. So that what can be true is that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus... If you will repent and believe um, that you will experience this new life that Jesus offers. You can experience this new life that Jesus offers. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That is, that this is the only way that we can experience eternal life. Do you understand that? The culture would tell you that sort of all roads lead to God, as though all roads lead to like Wisconsin or something. They just don't, right? Some roads don't lead there. There is one way to heaven, and Jesus claims this exclusivity. And if you say that, and I say that, and we affirm that the Bible says that, our culture will hate us for that. But it's malpractice for me to tell you anything other than what the Bible says. And so the Bible says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father and get back on this path except through Him. And the way we get there, the way we respond, is you have a choice, right? Once you get to the crisis point, you have a choice. You can persist and continue to go your own way. You hit this wall, you hit this crisis, you hit this terrible point, and you can say, I don't care. I'm just going to keep going my own way. I'm not going to turn from my sins. I'm going to keep doing what I'm always doing. And some of us sort of try to bargain. We say, well, what if I pray a prayer? And what if I get baptized and I read my Bible? Can I still keep going my own way? The answer is no. Matter of fact, the level at which you try to bargain with God where you're walking on your own path while simultaneously trying to walk in another path, you cannot go in two separate directions at all. You will constantly find yourself in a position of indecision. You understand? I want to go my own way. I want to keep pursuing my own sin. I want to keep pursuing my own hard-heartedness, my own sinfulness. And I prayed a prayer, so I should be able to keep doing my own thing. Or I I want to keep doing my own thing, and I I was baptized. I want to keep doing my own thing, and so I go to church. But there isn't any sort of submission to Christ. There's not any real sort of sense of repentance and belief on your part. You're just simply going your own way, and you're sprinkling a little bit of religion on top of it. Do you understand that? That's a hard truth for many of us to hear. And, and it's evidenced by, by one thing. Going our own way um, is filled with works of sin. Going God's way 
There is no work that can save you, but it's once you're on this path, it is evidenced by works that you are saved. Do you understand that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by works, not, not anything you can do so that man can boast, right? We understand that, that we are not saved by works, by doing good things. But what proves that we are saved is that after your salvation, there should be a host of works that demonstrate forgiveness for people, uh, love to your enemies, uh, generosity, faithfulness. There should be a trail of restored relationships behind you. <laughs> there should be forgiven people in your midst. There should be people who walk away saying, how deeply this person loves me. What is this joy overflowing from this person? Why is there so much love though I did something wrong? There should be a trail of these wonderful Christ-like works. Do people accuse you of Christ-likeness? Well, this, this demonstrates this path that we're on. So to get back on this path, I'll, I'll close it with this. The Bible prescribes two actions, and you have to choose. To not choose is to make a choice against it. But these two actions that Jesus prescribes are to repent and to believe. Two, two ideas. Repent and believe is, the word repent just simply means to change directions, to stop going the way you're going. You were going your own way. All we like street sheep have gone astray. We've gone our own way. To continue to go your own way is basically, I'm going to draw a crown here at the bottom, is basically to crown ourselves and say that we're kind of the king of our own life or the queen of our own life or the lord of our own life. We're still going to go our own way. We're still going to do our own thing. We're still going to make hard-hearted, stubborn, sinful, clearly sinful decisions. Though we read our Bible and though we try to do all these other things, we're still going our own way. But to repent is basically to allow Jesus to be the king and the lord of your life. That is to acknowledge that He can do a better job of leading you and making decisions for you and that you submit and surrender in this process of repentance. Keywords to repentance are submit, surrender, confess, um, turn away from. You remember in the, in the book of Acts in Ephesus, Paul preaches a very similar message to this. And in that city were all these magicians and they brought out all their magical scrolls and stuff, and they had a big like bonfire. They burned all this. People were selling property in the book of Acts. There was a, a wholesale, I, I, I give up everything. I repent. I turn from everything. And they said the value of all those things were, were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's sort of understanding. There was a full repentance. There was a full stop to sin. You say, well, does that mean I'm, I'm not able to sin anymore? It just means that your heart's desire and the path that you're on is that your sin should become less and less. There's more confession, more mercy, more repentance, more victory over sin in your life. Not sinlessness. That's repentance. The, the second part of Jesus' command is to believe. To believe has this understanding of surrender, it also has faith. It has trust. Right? So we, we, we surrender 
Uh, we, we trust in Jesus that he'll do a better job of leading us than, than we can for ourselves. That sort of faith says, I'm done going my own way, and I'm only going to go your way. That is, when God calls you to do something, your response in your flesh might be, no way. I'm not going to give that up. I'm not going to go to that person and offer forgiveness. I'm not going to be reconciled. I'm not going to be um, show mercy. I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to not hold this against them. But because you say so, I will. Remember the scene in the Gospels when Peter has been fishing all night and Jesus says in the morning, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And what does Peter say? Come on, man. We've been fishing all night and we haven't caught a single thing. But because you say so. Peter's flesh was, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. But because it's you, and because you're the Lord of my life, because I understand that I've submitted to you and I've surrendered to you, I will. And he throws the net over and he catches a whole bunch of fish. I think like 152. This understanding of repentance and faith comes to a point of surrender and submission from your own will and places your will in the hands of Jesus who says, I will lead you, follow me. Right? That's that akalutheo verb that Jesus defined last week in Mark 8. Deny yourself. That's kind of coming to this place of self-abandonment. Take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus has surrendered, faith-filled, obedient walk in Him. Well, this is the redemptive arc of God. This is, this is what it means for us to be saved. If you look back at Psalm 24... Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's the one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ and turned from their sins. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This next verse, verse 4, is a picture of the righteousness of Christ covering you. Because in our own flesh, we don't have clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. We don't not hold our hands up to what is false. We, we, we do all those wrong things, but the righteousness of Jesus covers us so that when God looks down at you, if you're in Christ, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the payment that Jesus paid for you and His righteousness covers you. That person, verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful that God would save us when we don't deserve it, that we've all gone our own way like sheep, but there is a moment of decision that you can make here where you say, I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm going to place my faith in Jesus and my works will demonstrate that. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Perhaps this morning you didn't um, fully understand the gospel. Maybe you're depending on a prayer you prayed years ago. Maybe you're depending on a, an experience that you had at summer camp. Um, maybe, you're, um, maybe your faith is not necessarily in Jesus, but in an experience from your past. The quickest way to understand if, if you're saved or not is that if, if you were presented the gospel as you were this morning, would you today choose to repent of your sin that you're currently engaged in Would you repent of that sin and would you place your faith in Jesus today? There's probably a sin that the Holy Spirit has already identified in your life as I've been speaking. 
Maybe it's just willfulness. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a religious sense that I've been raised in church and so I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus. Maybe there is a sense of morality in your life that you're depending on to get you to heaven. Whatever it is that you're trusting in to get you to heaven, if it's not Jesus, and if it's not demonstrated through repentance and faith, then you may not be saved. Maybe you're placing your faith in the decision you made. Maybe you're placing your faith in good works or your own righteousness. The good news is that it's not too late for you. If you put your hand on your wrist and you have a pulse and you're hearing these words, you can place your faith in Jesus today. You can repent of your sins and be born again, is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That you can have new life, that you can have forgiveness, that you can have a fresh start, that the sins of your past are forgiven. You can make that choice this morning. Or you can make a choice that you've made before, and that is to push through the wall, to remain hard-hearted, and to continue to go your own way. You have the freedom to do that. Evidence of God's love is that He won't force you to go to heaven. Eventually, He will give you what you so eagerly desire. And if that's to walk your own way, He will give you that. To your own consequence, He will give you the freedom to walk in your own way. Or you can choose to surrender by faith today and give your life to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, and placing your faith in Him. Many people in this room have done that already. There are many more who haven't. And I just wanted this morning to be a very clear understanding of what it means to get saved, to become a Christ follower. If you have questions that can't be answered in this sort of time here, maybe you're on the fence and you're trying to make this decision, I'm just going to ask you just to meet with me later. Maybe you want to ask for prayer. Maybe you have a question. Maybe you need some clarification. But many of you are ready to pray that prayer this morning, to surrender. It's not a magic prayer. It's just a prayer of surrender. So I'm going to ask with with your heads bowed and your eyes closed um, to make this uh, invitation available to everybody. That if you're ready to surrender today and give your life to Jesus, would you just raise your hand? All right. Okay, great. All right, fantastic. Many of you, you just heard that long presentation and several of you raised your hand. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Not a magic prayer. It's just a prayer of surrender. And I want you to pray that back to God. Right there in the quietness of your pew. And I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I've come to the end of myself. I know I can continue to go my own way. But I also know that there is great pain down that road. This morning, I surrender to You, Jesus. I confess that I've sinned against You. I thank You that You loved me so much that You paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. I thank You that You offer me new life and forgiveness. And I surrender to You today. Jesus, I give You my life. Would You take it and place me on this path to life? In Jesus' name, Amen. I know many of you prayed that prayer. I know that many of you 
certainly this was a message that you needed to hear today. Maybe God brought you through a variety of circumstances to this place today where you were able to hear that presentation and respond by faith. If that's you and you did that, I just want you to know how thrilled I am for you. I myself prayed and surrendered my life to Jesus almost 30 years ago from a background of atheism and immorality to having walked with God for almost 30 years in Jesus Christ, I can say that there is no greater path to life than the one I'm on. Many of you others, you also could testify to that. So if you prayed that prayer with me this morning and you surrendered your life to Jesus, you're at the very beginning of an amazing journey. It's amazing to walk with God, to be forgiven, to have his adoption, to be, to be able to serve him, to have purpose for your life. It's, an, it's incredible. And so I want to encourage you just to let us know, let me know, if you prayed that prayer and you're ready to surrender and to walk with Jesus, there's just some things that you need to understand. And I would like to be able to help you get started on that path to life. Others of you, maybe you weren't ready to pray that prayer. Maybe there are burning questions or sins that you're still kind of holding on to and that you're not ready to surrender. I just want to encourage you just to keep seeking. Uh, There is a time when this invitation for you God won't pursue you forever. Eventually, He will say, you're free to go. But while there's a window of opportunity, I encourage you to keep seeking. And if there's anything I can do to help you in that window of opportunity, any questions that you have, any theological issues, any issues of pain or the problem of sin and what others in the church have done to you, maybe you've been wounded, Whatever that is that's keeping you from surrendering to Christ, I want to facilitate that as best as possible. Well, thank you guys for listening so well. Uh, I could tell that God is working. I knew that this was a message I needed to deliver. This may be a handful of times a year I do this sort of uh, invitation, but this is one of them. And so I want to give you the chance to respond if today's your day. You can respond in a number of ways. You can fill out a card and say, I want to meet with you. Uh, You can fill out a card and say, I prayed that prayer and I'm ready to know more. I want to know more about what does it mean to join this church and to walk with God and to be on this path to life. Um, You can say, I'm not really ready and I'm just probably never going to come back here. (laughs) That's all right too. You can do that as well. Just know that God loves you and that that He has made a, a way possible for you to be saved through His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, let's pray and then uh, we'll lead us in a song of invitation.